we were just looking for how do we make sure that our purpose clearly has volunteering at its heart, but talks the things that we care about. So that's why I talked about the vision and purpose almost sitting together, this idea of a fair world, which is something that is what I would call equity and inclusion and justice ultimately. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm joined by Philip Goodwin, CEO of VSO, an organization whose purpose is to create a fair world for everyone. As you'll hear, he's thought deeply about how to develop and use strategy effectively in very uncertain environments, and about the type of leadership needed when you have big ambitions, but it's not at all clear how you will achieve them. Join me for this episode full of wisdom and practical advice. Philip, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Very glad you can join us. Uh, thanks for inviting me, but I'm very great pleasure to be here. Maybe I could ask you just to say a few words both about yourself and about VSO and how both of you got to where you are today. Yes, of course. So, you know, I spent the last 20 odd years in, I suppose, senior leadership positions, but internationally. So I spent a lot of time in South Asia, Pakistan, a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa, working in sort of, I suppose, what might be termed high-risk environments, working in cross-cultural sort of settings, and in jobs that are very much focused on understanding difference and diversity and trying to tackle some sort of complex social problems, building that idea of difference and diversity. And for the last eight years, I've been chief executive of VSO, and, uh, and VSO is an international development organization that works specifically with volunteers and what we call a sort of volunteering for development method. You know, we tackle some complex social issues around education, particularly for marginalized groups. So girls as a marginalized group, but also people with disability and so on, but also in health and in what is termed livelihood. So, you know, employment, uh, how people get their incomes and so on. So VSO's purpose formally is around creating a fair world for everyone. So it's very much focused on issues around, I suppose, equity, inclusion, justice, I suppose, ultimately. And the whole way in which volunteering comes into that is because it's focused on people as active citizens. You know, you're supporting people to be active within their communities, within society, and you know, really focusing on their confidence, their capacity to be active citizens and to really sort of build their own dream and to follow it, I suppose. And often people in these settings who are marginalized or are vulnerable, they're seen as victims. And for us, they're not. They're active agents of change. I, I kind of have this image in my head that I feel is either wrong or out of date, that it's people in the UK getting trained up a bit and then heading out into the world to make it a better place. Is that kind of what it's about or is it something else? No, so it is very much something else. So our history comes out of the 50s, the 1950s, when at that time actually it was very much around 
the world you described, which is people in the UK at that time who wanted to support others who were, as they would describe, less fortunate than themselves. And you know, you'd send people out to teach English or, or whatever, or help in hospitals. But now, no, it's very much around supporting national volunteers, community volunteers in the countries where we work. So it's very much around, you know, Kenyan volunteers or Pakistani volunteers or, yeah. So it's really focused on that. So we still have international volunteers. Again, the bulk of those international volunteers are from those countries as well. So, you, you know, Kenyans working in Cambodia and vice versa. There are some also international volunteers from, you know, the States and the UK and other places in Europe who are part of that, but they're very much the smallest part of that community. So we're not a what we would call a volunteer sending agency. We're a, a development agency that works with uh, volunteers primarily from the places where we work. And that's why it connects with this idea of active citizenship, you know, and, and volunteering being part of the fabric that makes up a, a developed society, if you like. You know, volunteering is a fundamental part of that. It's part of that fabric for a fully functioning and equitable society, actually. Right. So is one way to think about the purpose of the organization is to kind of promote that societal development through volunteering as it, not through the provision of volunteers, but through building volunteering capability in those societies. Yes, absolutely right. That's a, a really good description of it. And, you know, so at the same time, we deliver programs. So we currently have a program in Rwanda, which is delivering into every primary school in Rwanda. So it's, it's really working at, at that kind of scale. But uh, the fundamental piece, as you've described, is making sure there is volunteering capability globally. So you know, a big challenge that we see a lot is around, for example, humanitarian response. And yet we know that the majority of responders are people from the societies in which we work or the communities where we work. So making sure people have the capability and the tools and the networks, the platform to make sure they're able to deploy in those circumstances is really important. And we know that's true in, in the UK. You know, we saw that with COVID. And unless you have volunteers and those networks set up, you know, who's going to be responding and who's going to make sure that people in communities, particularly those who are vulnerable, are spotted and supported and so on and so forth. So, yeah, supporting that capability is, just seems a really important function for us. And, you know, we have partnerships with the African Union and with a number of old multilateral institutions to support those volunteering platforms and that capability. And again, that goes back towards that purpose of how do you create a fair world for everyone? Well, part of that is making sure people are included and have the say the confidence and the capability to participate actually because many people don't don't have that confidence or don't think that society includes them we had a program which was actually supporting young people primarily from the uk to have an international experience but working with national volunteers and it cost at the time five thousand pound a head to place volunteers doing all kinds of interesting work but 80 percent of those young people and most of them were from low socioeconomic backgrounds or from BAME background. So around 40% of that cadre were from there. 80% of those young people who came back from that experience went into further education or jobs. And three quarters of them, you know, so reported improvements in their well-being, their mental health, their confidence, and so on. I was talking to some UK government people recently. They've got a restart program that is trying to get young people back into employment. They have a 36% success rate and it costs them four times as much. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? It's just about different methods. You know, as you can imagine, people working with national volunteers in Kenya and whatever, and those networks in those places, by the way, are hugely successful. They have a completely mind-opening 
kind of conversation around agency and their place in the world. And again, a lot of the programs get them to reflect back on how they take action at home. You know, what do you do? So watch this space. I think that program is going to restart within 12 months. But what was interesting about that group, you know, from the, the low socioeconomic backgrounds, the majority of those would not have, have passports. They wouldn't have traveled from their hometown ever before. So I used to meet these young people. They're aged 18 to 25, and they'd come to the induction sessions, and many of them had never been out of their hometown. People think that's not true here, but it is true. People haven't got passports. They haven't traveled. You know, and you'd have people who came to London, for example, had never been out of Stoke or whatever. And again, we were very active in our marketing, trying to find those groups who wouldn't have those opportunities. So it's just interesting, again, how people, you know, learn, develop, how they get opportunity and how much it costs and what it pays back into the UK. Because you're not trying to get people to become international development workers. You're not. You're just trying to get them to get a sense of who they might be and where their place in society might be. You'd articulated the formal purpose of the organization. I was just wondering whether that was there when you arrived, it's been the same for years, or did you engage in some process of developing it, updating it while you've been CEO? Yeah, so it is something we've updated. And we went through a formal process of reviewing the vision statement and the purpose statement. And it was largely a question of refreshing, and I suppose a process of discovery, really. You know, if you look at an organization like ours, which has been around for 60 years, and it's what I sometimes call legacy organizations. You know, they sort of have this deep history that sits there. Mm -hmm. And you have to somehow tap into that. I often use this phrase, you know, deep intent. So what is the deep intent of the organization? And we know times have changed, you know, that uh, fashion's changed, our insight into the world changes. You know, we hope we have a better understanding of various issues after 60 years. But still, I think where I was when I came as chief executive, people seem to be wondering whether we were a volunteering organization and people seem to be a bit stuck you know are we a development organization or a volunteering organization you know my reflection back was well we're both aren't we but where we started is in the volunteering if you abandon that what is the distinctive part of who we are you know what is our usp so i think a lot of the discussion at that time was around well let's discover who we are let's just remind ourselves and so that was really the journey that we went on around that period. Also, we had a very adversarial expression of our purpose. So it was something like tackling poverty through volunteering. And that seemed, again, of its time, you know, adversarial, sort of almost a fighting metaphor. And I think, again, we were just looking for how do we make sure that our purpose clearly has volunteering at its heart, but talks to things that we care about. So that's why I talked about the vision and purpose almost sitting together, this idea of a fair world, you know, which is something that is what I would call equity and inclusion and justice, ultimately. But it fits with our way of being, if you see what I mean, because we're not an advocacy organization. It's a soft expression of that. What strikes me about that statement is I might have expected to hear the word fairer. And I think there's something interesting that sort of as you say, non-adversarial, but in some ways I think more powerful to say a fair world, because it sort of says, well, if we were there already, we'd be done, and we're not done yet. Whereas fairer, you know, somehow it can always be fairer. Yeah, it is very much an aspiration. You know, we'd like to see a fair world for everyone. And our contribution to that is, is volunteering, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's great. You said you went through a formal process. What was the process you went through? Who got involved? How long did it take? all those sorts of things. 
to I'm a great believer in the socialization of ideas. If you put ideas out there and allow people a chance to talk about and explore them, you don't suddenly experience this, you know, sort of what I would call sort of clunk moment where you go, well, before we were here and now we're there. And particularly around things around identity, there's a journey in which you become. And so some of the discussion is around how do you become? How do you sort of go, well, that's who we are. And so the journey really was led by the person who's in charge of what we call business development. So in another world, all the sales stuff, essentially. So he led the process and it was really wide ranging, a you know, series of discussion groups coming together, exploring ideas. I think it took place over about probably about six months. And I didn't think we felt a huge sense of urgency because it was about signs and signals, really, for us. So I don't think we were in a huge challenging moment. We've been in a huge challenging moment where we needed to go, we need a new purpose now because otherwise we don't have direction. We weren't really in that space. It was more around, well, how do we evolve? How do we make sure that we're clear? And how does that discussion take place in a way that lands? So that expression about purpose, I think we launched it about three and a half, four years ago. I think most people would struggle to remember what it was before, which is good news. And most people would probably say, but hasn't that always been our purpose and our vision? That's what I mean about the socialization of ideas. You know, you get these ideas and people go, but that's who we've always been, isn't it? And you go, that's fine. Good. Let's go with that. In those kinds of discussions, and this applies to other parts of decision-making in organizations. I'm a great believer that you don't have to seek consensus. You know, Indeed, don't try and seek consensus. Certainly in my organization, I, I really don't like that way of working. But what you try and do is try and engage people. And that's something quite different. So I use the sort of the image, really, of the upward spiral of conversation. So that's where you're trying to get to. You're trying to get into a conversation that takes you upwards to a point. And many organizational discussions get locked into either a sort of circle, which just keeps going round. You know, the committee that meets to discuss a key thing and it meets again, it meets again. And, you know, six months later, you're sort of going, what are we here for? Or the worst thing is it gets into a downward spiral of conversation, which gets locked and then moves into a bad place. So I often challenge people and say, where are we in that? Are we in the spiral, the upward spiral, or are we in the locked circle? Or God forbid, are we in the downward spiral? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I'm always trying to use this image with colleagues and say, well, so where are we? We're, we're not trying to seek consensus, but we are trying to move our ideas forward to a point where we make a decision and move forward. So when you're doing that work, was it all sort of done internally driven by your business development person or did you use any external support? No, it was driven internally. I suppose it's horses for courses. Sometimes it's useful to have external. On this, I think we've done a lot of work with our leadership team in getting them to be able to have the capability to facilitate conversations. And I think we felt at that point it was probably easier for us to do that internally than to bring external in. We had had quite a bit of work when I first became chief executive to try and get that strategic leadership team into that capability space. So I did use external facilitators a lot with the strategic leadership group, probably through the first three years of being chief executive. And that was really focused, as I said to that team, on building their capacity as a leadership group to be able to interact with each other and to work in the cascade with the rest of the organization. And I think that is good investment. And you know, the question always arises in my mind, when do you need to make more of that investment? So I suppose that makes the case both for using external support, but also building on your own capacity at certain points. Yeah. And what would you say the strategy is? The strategy for us, I think the expression of it is, uh, you know, the top line is this phrase, together we are change makers. 
And for us, that makes the link between this challenge of what I talked about, vulnerability and marginalization, talks about the vision of a fair world, and then this purpose of volunteering to create change. So and the strategy really is about how do we address inequality and marginalization at scale through our programs? How do we support the mobilization of active citizens around the world? We call that our engagement work. How do we position volunteering as a transformational contribution to delivering a fairer world? That's our leadership piece. And then the fourth piece is our operating model sustainable and supporting those three things. So our strategy is we're trying to make sure our programs are working at scale and reach these vulnerable and marginalized people, that we build active citizenship um, through engagement. We are leaders in volunteering and then the model underneath. So so that's our strategy in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. But it does, at least for me, leave a little unanswered the question, how do you decide which programs to pursue? Okay. So it, what frames our work is that we historically have worked in these three, what we call practice areas of education, health, and livelihoods, that we're clear that we work in fragile contexts. So there's a discussion around fragility, you know, how fragile are these contexts? Do they really need us there? And if they don't, you know, we don't work there. Are there needs in these particular areas of education, health, and livelihoods? And can we unlock resources to do the work? And so you're talking about the need, you're talking about our capability, and we're talking about the resources that we can unlock. Right. I think I can see how that connects to your purpose. How did you come up with that as your strategy? Did you go through a similar process like you did with the purpose? Was it more organic? How did you get to that? So our strategies tend to last around six years, and I'll tell you why. It's very reductionist. I tend to run operating plans around three years. And the reason why I run three-year operating plans is that I think that's the maximum horizon you can think about. I worry now that that horizon is getting even shorter and that three years, you know, really is a best two plus one. But hey, let's work with that. You could do a longer strategy. But again, my feeling is that you want a long enough horizon to see where you're going to be, but not so long, particularly for our work. It's interesting. I'm a trustee of another organization which works on saving lives at sea. So it's the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, which is very famous in the UK and Ireland, Mm -hmm. does all the sea rescue. Our strategies, I sit as a non-exec there is really looking at 2050 because of their planning timelines. You know, so if you build a boat, you know, that boat has a life that's got 30 years in it. It's a completely different kind of planning horizon. But for us, it's six years with two operating plans. So I'm a great believer in simplicity in both strategy and operating plans. So I tend to think that in my kind of organizations, I feel that often there is over planning around things that actually you just don't know and can't control. People seek to control it through a lot of inputs into understanding things, which actually don't really tell them very much, if I can be blunt. So you'll often look at organizations and they'll have strategy papers, which are 30 pages long, and operating plans, which are similarly long. And my experience of them is they sit on the shelf. And after six years or five, someone gets, oh, hang on a minute, dust this off. Oh, right. Okay. If you're lucky, they say, did we do it? If you're not lucky, they say, let's do a new strategy. And so you end up sort of, I don't know, yo-yoing, really. So for me, the strategy document is very much a framing document. It talks about where we are. So part of the journey of getting that strategy together is understanding our journey. 
my teams to understand, well, where have we come from? You know, where are we now and how do we get here? And reminding ourselves. So we often do various techniques to do that with our strategic leadership team, which is, you know, you walk the river or you, you do this storytelling. And we do that as a group. So you'll ask people to talk about, you know, what are the highlights over the last three to five years? Where were the challenges for us? Where do things go well? Where do things not go well? You just map it and you explore that together. You know, there's multiple perspectives to try and find out where you've got to. I think that's a really important part of strategizing, actually, not least because you often discover treasure. And I like that. So often people look at it and go, wow, we did that. You know, I'd forgotten about that. And you have moments of shared sadness or difficulty where people go, oh, that wasn't that a nightmare. You know, but we're still here, you know. I think that's a really powerful tool in terms of understanding and building capability for the future, actually. So going through that journey of discovery allows you to go, okay, so this is why we're here. So what is our story going forward? And start to think about how would we like to continue this story? You know, if you've got people who've come into the team halfway through the strategy or more recently, it's like going into a film halfway through the story. You've no idea how you got here. And so you need people to say, well, what happened in the first half of the film? You know, this is part of that integration and alignment, you know. So then you're working out also how you want to take the story forward. And so we do a, you know, a lot of work around that narrative. Again, I'm a great believer in narrative and story as a way of finding oneself as a group, as an organization. I think it's also a way of gaining control in contexts in which teams can feel out of control and so they don't know. You say, well, we own our story. We may not know. There's all kinds of challenges, constraints. This happened. We didn't expect that. That didn't happen. But we own our story. And that's our story. So let's imagine how we want that story. So I, I like that because I think it allows people to recover often when you're in a world that seems to be in sort of permacrisis and you know, faster and faster challenges. So that's part of the process that we've gone through in terms of story. I use it a lot in both planning and strategy more generally. One of the things you mentioned when we talked earlier was strategy is a journey of not knowing. Yes. And I think that's kind of what you're touching on there. Yes, absolutely. Because um, again, the one thing I think is what I would call a category mistake is when we as leaders pretend that we have perfect information. We don't. You know, We never have perfect information. We know what we know and we have to identify what we don't know. And then part of the leadership journey is how do we manage the fact we don't know? We just don't. And so part of the work of strategy is to make sure there's enough in the strategy to hold the whole group. So really, I often think strategy is like mapping out the island in which we're operating. And it gives them enough to hold everyone to say, well, this is where we're operating. We don't quite know what's going to happen, but this should give you all the sort of signs and signals, the terrain that allows you to make decisions about how you move forward. Mm -hmm. So again, that's why you don't over-strategize and you don't over-plan, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So if you look at our plan, our operating plan that sits underneath our strategy, we've expressed it as a series of 20 commitments. So it's quite simple, actually. So it's contextualized a bit before that talks about, you know, what are the challenges? What are the constraints? What are the opportunities? All that stuff. But then we say, okay, bearing that all in mind, here are the, so currently it's 20, here are the 20 things that we think will move us forward against this high level strategy. In a way, that's the expression of choice moments as well, Belton, that you mentioned earlier. Where are your choice moments? So these are the bits that go, okay, this is our expression of how we would determine our choice in the moment. And this is where we want to get to. What's helpful about that, I think, is it allows you to constantly interrogate as a group and as a wider organization, well, where are we? Are we doing the things that we said we we're going to do? And, you know, I found when I was a more sort of junior 
member of a team, but also as a chief executive, you suddenly look at commitments and you go, we've done nothing on that. Number 19, we've just not moved it. Then it allows you to interrogate, well, are we not performing? Is it because we're not committed, but we should still do it? Or is it actually redundant? It was never feasible or it wasn't worth it. It allows you to have that conversation and to make a decision, well, let's take it off or let's up the game. Or So I think it's about visibility. What I like on both strategy and operating plans is it should be visible and it should allow you to have accountability both to yourself and to each other. It allows conversation to happen. But what are we doing? Who is doing it? What's my bid? What's your bid? What do I expect of you? What do you expect of me? You know, all those give and get conversations that you need to have as groups. One of the things I hear in what you're saying is a lot of executives approach this whole topic around kind of determining action. You know, let's figure out the X things we're going to do. What I hear is, yes, you need to get to some of that, but you're kind of putting conversation and if I could call it this way, exploration much more right at the heart of things, kind of that issue of we don't know. So let's not put all that not knowing off to the side. Let's pull it in and go, so we don't know what the future is going to hold. What do we want it to be? So we don't know what's going to happen. How do we react to that? I think that's really a very insightful way to approach the whole thing. Well, it does require you to do quite a lot of work, certainly with senior leaders, and to support them into working with their teams to be comfortable with that. When I came into this organization, we'd have these strategic leadership group meetings. And I used to use a facilitator in that, somebody I'd worked with a lot. So I felt very confident in his facilitation and people he used. We had a good understanding between each other. I wasn't the chief executive, although I'm very action driven. So it's part of my journey. You know, I like making a decision moving forward and let's do this and let's do that, like many other executives. But I have learned over the years to hold that back. Actually, that's what I've used a facilitator for in part of my journey, to hold me into that terrain where I'm less comfortable, actually, where they invite me to not say too much, but to invite others to step into a leadership space. And I remember with that group when I first started, that people were very puzzled. Why is the chief executive not telling us what we should be doing? Why are we not here making decisions right now about this thing? And, you know, I would say to them, well, you know, this is about us collectively. It's about our collective leadership. And it's also when you spend money in bringing people together, that isn't about making decisions in that moment. You know, if we're sitting together for three days, what do we do on the other you know, 200 and whatever days when we're not sitting together in the same room? How do we make decisions then? So this is an investment into our ability not to make decisions now, to make decisions in all of those other hundreds of days we have in the year when we're not sitting in a room. And that's quite counterintuitive because people imagine you come into a room and you sort of thrash it out. And often leadership is about, well, we'll have an arm wrestling until somebody gives in, then we'll move there. But what it doesn't do is build any kind of alignment. So what you have is still the resistance. When they go back, you may have you know, arm wrestled them into submission, but when they get back, they still resist. So what you're trying to get is this point of alignment where you're unlocking the collective power of a group. So you know this is all the ideal world. There are various bits where it doesn't work and I may not behave in that way. But Certainly in terms of how I think about it, that's how the approach, I think, has worked for us. Mm -hmm. As you've been on this journey, and it sounds like it's been over a number of years, both to refresh the purpose and to develop the strategy you're now in the midst of, what surprised you most about that journey? I suppose what surprised me most is um, 
so this sounds awful, but it works <laughs> in a way. Sometimes you sit there mm -hmm. and you have to have faith around certain parts of it. So there's a particular bit of our strategy where essentially this bit about active citizenship. So how do we build networks of active citizens? The point we expressed that as part of our strategy, we had no idea how to deliver it. It was expressed as something which we believed was really, really important. And we wrote it down. This is what we're committed to doing. And I remember having the conversation with colleagues who said, well, how do we do that? And I said, I have no idea, but we're going to figure it out because we know it's important. There's a bit of it where you have to have some courage or madness around that. Because if I look back, there wasn't a roadmap to do that. We knew what we were trying to do, but we didn't know quite the path. So I say I was surprised. I believed it would happen. But what has amazed me is actually it does work. It really does. We met as a strategic leadership group for the first time in person in October last year. So since COVID, it was the first time we came together. And we had a number of senior colleagues who joined us in between that period. And one of the colleagues said, it's amazing. You did what you said you were going to do. You know, you can imagine as a chief executive, you just sit there and you go, right, my work here is done. It's a beautiful moment because you have all the day-to-day -day stuff, which is challenging the ups and downs. It surprises me how it does work. It still surprises me, even though I believe and have seen it and whatever. Sure. Yeah. What I get is it's always sort of a bit of stepping out into the darkness and expecting that there's going to be solid ground, but it's always nice when it's there. Also, the other side of it is sometimes things don't work and you have to own that and show it and make it visible and say, okay, we're not progressing on this. So let's be transparent. Let's be clear about it. What do we do? How do we respond to that? That feels to me more authentic. You know, we don't have to pretend. But we have to own where we are, the reality. So the good things and the bad things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the most difficult part? The most difficult part? I suppose the fact that actually, that having to take people on that journey, you go through quite a long period of where 30% absolutely love it, 30% are sitting on the fence, and 30% hate it and don't want to be there. So I suppose the bit that's difficult around that, particularly on you know when I first came to the organization, is helping the 30% or whatever it is, you know, find where they're going to go. And that's not easy. So the people stuff is always the bit that gives you the most joy and the most difficulty. So I suppose if I looked back, that's the bit that was most tricky going through that period, particularly when I first joined, because we were shifting the organizational culture, actually. And that takes time. And in some ways I look back, you know, I've been at this organization eight years now. You look back and you think, was I mad? or courageous or whatever, you know, a mixture of all of those things. And I had good support and a really good team around me who were in that 30% who really believed in what we were trying to move to. And, and actually, even to be honest, in some of the 30% who clearly that wasn't going to be their future, even amongst those people, we had some very courageous people who were able to say, I'm going, but this is the right thing for the organization. The organization is going into a new place. And it's right that I'm leaving. Always amazes me that people have the courage to stand up, particularly because they're, you know, they're losing their employment. My experience, and maybe it matches yours, is that people are much more likely to do that than the common wisdom kind of accepts. People, given the right circumstance, can say, yeah, okay, I get it. This isn't the right place for me anymore. Much more than a lot of the myth about change would have you believe. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's also something that surprised me. Some of the courage of people who weren't going to be part of the journey going forward, but also courageous enough to say, that's okay. 
you know, this is still the right journey. I'm just not going to be on it. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm going to go and do something else, you know, but carry on because I'm right behind you. So I think that's incredibly moving, actually. Yeah. What advice might you have for a leader in an organization of any sort who themselves are wrestling with their organization's purpose and how that translates into strategy? What advice might you give them? Advice is always contextualized, isn't it? Because again, it depends on what situation you're in. If you're in an organization like the one I joined, hmm. I think it is really good to explore this idea of where the sort of deep identity, what I call the deep intent of an organization is, if you're thinking about purpose. Because, you know, to me, you're always trying to find what I call the desire line of an organization. If you go in a park, there's always a formal path. And there's always a bit where people actually want to walk across, you know, the bit. Yeah, where the people actually walk. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, the mistake you make sometimes as a leader is you go, well, I'm really clear. It's got to go this way. But actually the organization, you know, is going to really struggle with that. So I think really thinking about where that might be and uncovering where it might be. You know, for me, in a way, when I came to VSO, the whole thing about volunteering, it was so powerful. It didn't seem very difficult for me to sort of tap into that idea. So let's find the current expression of that. And then you're in the what I call the desire line. So I think it is worth thinking about it. And you never ignore an organization's history. You know, maybe there's some organization that can reinvent themselves. But I think if you've been around 60 years, you've got to go back to so what is really important to me, if you're not able to discover that bit of your identity, you're always going to struggle. You might as well start a new organization, to my mind, with a new purpose. So somehow you've got to find, you know, are we still relevant? What's the expression of that relevance now? So maybe that's the advice I would give. Never throw away the history. You're wasting it. Yeah. Um, what haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that we ought to? One of the things that I learned a couple of jobs ago is around how many leaders misunderstand that actually a lot of leadership is about what I call the head, hands, and heart. So it's about the head, the logic, the hands, the doing, but it's about the feelings and the emotion, the heart. And a lot of leadership forgets about the emotional content. And that is often the bit that's most tricky, most difficult to understand. But if you don't deal with it or understand it, your logic and your doing will fall down. And you've always got to find balance, I think. So that applies to strategy, it applies to planning, it applies to a whole range of things. When things work really well, you have the head, the hands and the heart aligned, coming together. You know, you don't have one, you don't want an organization that just has feeling. I mean, that's a disaster. Nor do you want an organization that's all logic. And it's funny how many organizations misunderstand that. Maybe it's just the people I work with. <laughs> they're, they're much more often trapped by being mostly hands, particularly in the world we're in now. They're so busy doing that the ability to step back and it, it just asks the question, you know, sort of, does this feel right? Are we having fun? Does it seem like it matters? Gets lost. And then the clear thinking about it also is sometimes hard to find. But I think, yeah, trying to say there's got to be a balance, I think is right. Well, I would agree. And I've experienced that myself. You know, sometimes when talking to my team, I say, why are we doing this? Let's remind us of why are we doing it? Because too often you move into the, we've got a problem, let's do something. And then you come back and you go, why are we here? Well, it's probably because we didn't think enough about what is the question we're asking ourselves. So there is a bit about spend more time thinking about the question. What is the question we're really, really asking? And then there's a bit about, and who are the people, the best people in this organization to help us answer that question. A bit more time on that. So often, again, you move quickly and go, this is the question. Then you quickly go, and here are the people. 
And before you know it, you've got 25 people working on something. Most of them are not the right people. So more time on the question, more time on who are the right people to help us make a decision on that and take it forward. When I asked you about what advice, you were sort of, oh, it all depends. But I think that's a great bit of advice there. Well, I think just to to finish, I think this thing that often, again, in leadership is that reflection is underrated. So it goes to what you said, Belden. So actually, one of the core values we have in our organization is we are reflective in our practice. And it sounds a bit Zen, lots of values. We have four values, but the most important is we're reflective in our practice. Yeah. Just to take that across from sort of the kind of organization you're leading into business organizations, you know, you talk about operating in fragile environments. I think many more businesses, whether they know it or not, are operating in fragile environments. And that reflective practice, that sort of what are we really trying to do, what's working, what's not working, all that sort of thing, I think is an increasingly important leadership skill. Absolutely. Couldn't underscore that enough. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of wisdom, clearly a lot of many years thinking about and seeing what works and adjusting your own leadership approach in what you've had to say. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing. It's been a pleasure, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. <laughs>